Hello, and welcome to the trillions episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello, hi. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hi, hello. And we have a special guest beaming in from somewhere on the North Sea, Mr. Robin Wigglesworth. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Uh, Robin, who are you, where are you, and what book are you plugging? Yes. So my name is Robin Wigglesworth. I'm a global finance correspondent at the Financial Times. And despite the pretty Harry Potter-esque last name, I'm not plugging a fantasy novel, but a book on the history of passive investing and how it's reshaping markets, investing, finance, and the world, really. We really loved having you on, when was it, a couple of years ago? We we, we sang COD songs that together. Uh, you are one of our favorite guests, so we're going to definitely talk to you about your book. We are going to talk about Masterworks, which is this company which is selling fractional ownership of paintings. We are also going to talk about Tether, which is a $69 billion cryptocurrency that claims to be backed by real-world assets that aren't crypto, but who knows. All of that and a spectacular Slate Plus segment on snacking coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So, Robin, your book is called Trillions. This is, I'm assuming, because there are trillions of dollars invested passively. There was this massive, passive revolution. Is that is that why you call it trillions? Or is it just a sexy word? Well, it is a sexy word. Uh, it sounds great when I when people say it. But yes, it's it's just because it's so massive, right? And it's a bit of a, a play on words on uh, the fact that there's a hedge fund manager tv show on showtime called billions and you know these hedge funds are kind of cool and sexy with their billions but if you're an index fund then you're talking trillions like the biggest fund in the world is an index fund and that's over a trillion dollars just that one fund a billion dollars isn't cool you know what's cool a trillion dollars <laughs> exactly Aaron Sorkin like needs to update by three orders of magnitude. Yeah, I mean he needs to get on that. But I mean when he when he finally turns his talents to the passive investing revolution, I'm sure that's what we're going to get some snappy Sorkin dialogue around index funds. So so I need to ask because you've managed to squeeze an entire book out of index funds, which I'm quite impressed that you've managed to do that. If Aaron Sorkin or anyone else like turned your book into a movie. I don't know if you've got any anyone like knocking down your door to option this thing yet. But what's the plot of the movie? Oh, that's a good question. I, I the plot is yeah. I mean, it's a pretty familiar story of like some out there people and the boy meets girl. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, these um boy meets computers in the nineteen sixties. They've got long hair and they're typically the not computers working. Computers or at- the boy. Yeah, well, they're mostly, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> hairy computers. Yeah, hairy computers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, some of them were pretty big, at least, at the time. They were chunky computers. These kind of mainframes in, in the Time Life building and stuff like that. 
because they were working at crappy institutions. They weren't working at like Solomon Brothers or Drexel or Goldman Sachs. They were working at Wells Fargo, which was a crappy San Francisco bank at the time. They were working in like the third biggest bank in Chicago. They were working at like this small proxy investment company in the outskirts of Boston. And but they they kind of use computers and they realize that oh holy crap most people actually do really bad job uh, beating the market well how about we just join the market and they invented the first index funds and they're just kind of crazy characters uh, and they did something profoundly disruptive so that's why I do think it is a fun story at least the main thing I learned from reading your book was that while we all think of index funds now as the boring zero alpha sort of like the place you go if you're like i'm not smart i can't beat the market so i'm just going to invest with the market that's not how they started they started as a way of actually beating any other possible strategy and really basically the idea was if we use all of these computers to be able to match the market exactly then that's outperformance right there well it's it's kind of the it was the perfect marriage of the computer arrow that was not really dawning on wall street but it was in the rest of the world as it were ibm was finally turning out like computers that could actually be used by individual companies and not just the u.s government for like creating nuclear weapons and financial academia and people have realized that the best way, if you measured risk against reward, what's the best risk-adjusted return you can get? Well, actually, it turned out to be just buying the entire market. And that's what they did. I mean, nobody really thought of it in terms of mediocrity per se, though that was the obvious and facile attack. It was just that this is the best thing for most investors, and especially for big investors like AT&T, these big pension plans at the time that basically were, had like hundreds of active managers that were just like swapping stocks between each other and taking massive trading costs off on the top. So, yeah, there was the most sophisticated big investors in the world were the ones that were doing this as a way of beating and doing better than just using normal fund managers. It was not considered boring at the time. And, and is that still the case? Is like it's the trillion dollars in passive investment strategies still mostly big, sophisticated institutions, or is it me with my Vanguard fund? No, it, it's a mix now. I, I don't know the exact breakdown. I mean, so in the public, the fund index fund universe that we know of, there's around sort of sixteen trillion dollars, seventeen trillion dollars, probably now overall. Because lots of like big pension plans or a sovereign wealth fund in the Gulf or Norway, where I live, you know, people can do this in house. So they just have their internal index strategies that isn't in a fund. So overall, we're talking twenty five, twenty six trillion dollars probably now, and that's a big mix of yeah, you know, ordinary people saving you know for retirement, for healthcare emergencies, and so on, to yeah, big pension plans, insurance companies, private banks, sovereign wealth funds. So decent mix. Every so often I read a story that says there's too much money in these funds and like it's really bad. Da, 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 da. Is, do I have to worry that there are trillions of dollars in index funds? Like, is there any downside to lots of money being put in these strategies? Is there any downside to lots of money, specifically? <laughs> <laughs> What's the downside to trillions? Uh, no, it's it's the big subject right now. Because I mean, we've seen it so many times, right, in, in history, but it's only financial history, that we take fundamentally good ideas and, and do them to death. We overdo it, right? Securitization actually pretty good idea but you know do it badly or do it too much then all hell breaks loose so lots of people think that about index funds now i definitely see some downsides on a host of, of of kind of nerdy areas but the broad attack from largely active managers who are seeing their profit margins squeeze and they're still incredibly healthy complaining about this i i i find extremely unconvincing they're still Hundreds and, of and the attack is basically that if everyone indexes, then you won't have any price discovery and markets will fail. Essentially, that's the sort of the, the the headline thing. I mean, people have been warning about this since the seventies, but fundamentally, like, how many people do you really need to make an efficient markets, and you really need to pay millions of active fund managers, your mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, their traders 
you know, incredibly big salaries uh, to do this. I, you know, fundamentally, the markets today seem way more efficient than they ever have in history. Uh, and we can see that from how hard they are to beat. And fund managers make more money than they ever have before. And these companies are on average more profitable than Google and Apple. So I struggle to see why we should cry or shed any tears for the fate of active managers, at least for the foreseeable future. So, Emily, you wanted to ask the obvious question here, which is basically, if markets are so efficient, what's up with GameStop? (laughs) Yeah. And Robin Hood and, you know, people. Yes. What's up with GameStop? Why do people actively invest? It's a great question. And I, I look, I'm not an efficient market zealot. There are people that like work in index funds that are complete like jihadists around efficient markets hypothesis that Gene Farmer first uh, articulated. I, I think it's it's a bit like George Box, this sort of semi-famous British statistician, once said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think efficient markets is kind of a wrong model. Like we can see on every day and in the long run, markets aren't actually that efficient. But it's a, just a useful f- mental model for how markets do work, that they do most of the time reflect what we know. And like they reflect what humans do and humans do dumb stuff all the day. I do dumb things like countless of times every day. Um, and markets kind of aggregate all the dumb and smart decisions of millions of people around the world. So are markets efficient? No. Will dumb stuff like GameStop or, or .com or, or subprime crisis happen all the time? Yes. But in the long run, does that change the fundamental issue that markets are really hard to beat for the vast majority of people? No, not really. I guess it's like people go to Las Vegas and gamble. Yeah. People going to trade GameStop. Exactly. Yeah. Do fun, more fun Robin right? Hood stuff. This is my my <laughs> mental model, which is that like GameStop is... is um, it's a fun gamble, but it's a bit bigger than that. Um, I have this bigger idea that the boomers, basically, their prime earning years, their form- formative years, basically predated the, the the easy availability of index funds in, you know, certainly ETFs. Um, then us Gen X types embraced the passive revolution with both arms and were like this is great like i get to outperform my you know parents and also spend much less time worrying about the market and spend much lower fees on hedge fund managers it's a win-win-win um but now we have like a new generation of like the the zoomers and the younger millennials okay, who are yeah, jumping on the street bets. and mention that the elder millennials just have no money <laughs> But then we can go. And the elder millennials have no money, so we can ignore those. Uh, the geriatric millennials, like like Stacey, we you know like they they're just we miss, irrelevant. We miss that. We case. miss that completely. You know, the the fidelities um, of the world are like, who are you? You you not here. But now, but now we have a whole new generation of people who are buying crypto, who are buying NFTs, who are buying GameStop, who are very actively trading, um, especially options on Robinhood, and. Is it my imagination or is the pendulum like generationally swinging back towards active um, gambling? I, I think probably yes, right? I mean, I think it's partially that the boomers have seen a few boom markets and a few bust markets as well. And younger people have basically since the financial crisis that made them maybe they might remember it and it's made them jaded about some mainstream finance, but they've basically seen markets go up in a straight line ever since, right? Stocks don't go down. You know, buy the dip has been like the mantra, like, and the right thing to do for basically like over a decade now. So I, I, if you go on a Reddit, like there are threads there dedicated to like how to counter index fund FUD. Like how do you like counter old people and boomers telling you to buy index fund? Like they call it like boomer spam, essentially. And FUD, funds. for anyone listening, <laughs> it refers to fear, uncertainty and doubts, which is also a phrase seized upon by folks who believe in crypto, which we will talk about later. <laughs> also, it's so social that the trading now on Robinhood and you mentioned Reddit. And I mean, it's a way that younger investors are like connecting with people and sort of like showing off. And it's very social in a way that I don't think it was for boomers. It's, a, it's, it's like just an extension of other things happening with social networking, I think, too. Well, I think probably at the dot com, people were kind of going to the golf clubs or, or you know the bar and exchanging top 
stock tips and it was kind of a social thing there as well you wanted to be part of the crowd if people were talking about stock tips at the golf club on sunday you'd kind of want to do the same these are people had money now people you know a lot of people don't seem to have that money but you know with fractional trading you can buy chunks of shares rather than entire shares and it's a community right you feel part of something bigger than yourself and i think it's something that we all want so it's kind of an extension of the the community building that we see online happening around Reddit, and it just happens to be around trading GameStop options and screwing hedge funds, if you can. That's like an added and, bonus. And there, there is, to be clear, some kind of a community around passive investing, too. There's these things called bogleheads, which, you know, try and form a community. And most interestingly, I keep on going back to uh, an article that or the article that Michael Lewis wrote about passive investing, he only wrote one, he was basically, how do I make this incredibly boring subject interesting? And the way he did that was by finding this company called Dimensional Fund Advisors out in California, which actually charge quite a lot of money to do passive investing. And I am, I, I love this model so much. It's super fascinating. Basically, what they say is, look, Doing the passive strategy, that's the easy bit. But building that community, having someone you can talk to to tell you that you're doing the right thing, feeling that you're part of something bigger than yourself, you know, for a fee, which is non-negligible, we will sell that to you. And Dimensional has done incredibly well by selling this, like, premium passive. Yeah, you want a product to not be boring, I think. Like, if you're trying to sell a thing, you want it to be... Yeah, not boring. Like there's a reason we like. But you also want it to be affirmative, and not generics, right? You and I think that's that's yeah. where the combination of the dopamine hit of interestingness and the like the social acceptance that both you know you and Robin are describing kind of intersect. I have a, a grand unified theory of active investing, which is essentially that the same people who are super into playing video games either competitively or communally and like talking to people on their headsets and talking to people in, in Discord are the same people who are really into certain elements of the crypto market where everybody's also talking to everybody in Discord and on Reddit. Same people who have, who are engaging in 10,000 long posts on Reddit about, you know, how is everyone feeling today? Same people who are into sports betting and are like, you know, meeting up with their poker buddies and trying to decide like what games they're going to bet on this weekend. And all of the dynamics are the same. Like the, the assets involved might be different. The amounts of money involved might be different, but the underlying feelings and the underlying, I think, social and cultural reasons for engaging in this are very, very similar. It's playing. It's play. It's play. Yes. It's the way that people play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that, the Reddit forum. Passive, I, was, I know there's bogle heads, but. Yeah. But it's not, you, not you don't want to, you, you're not the cool person at a party <laughs> if you bring up that you're a bogle head, right? You want to talk about, you know, buying. <laughs> Unless like, it's a I bogle head this. party. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I bought Solana. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stacy, how do you buy Solana? And the answer is you have to trade into Solana and out of Tether. What is Tether and why is it in the news? Well, Tether is in the news because my colleague Zeke Fo, that's F-A-U-X, best possible name for a financial journalist and investigative reporter, <laughs> um, wrote the cover story for the magazine this week about tether and the mystery of the assets that supposedly back them. And when I say supposedly back, tether is what's known as a stable coin. 
the better to distinguish itself from the volatility coins of the rest of pretty much everything <laughs> in crypto, where the idea is the value of this coin will stay at or above $1. Because in an ideal scenario, each coin, each token, however you want to think about this, is backed either by an actual US dollar or an asset that is pretty fungible with a US dollar, say, for example, highly rated commercial paper, perhaps. But the mystery of Tether that's be- that's referred to in this story by Zeke Fo is that it's actually very hard to track down where the 69 billion in assets that they say are backing each one of their stable coins are at. It's a kind of a cracking story that Zeke was, he sort of wandered around the world talking to different bankers, talking to different financial markets participants, and essentially asking them, have you seen any evidence that all of the assets that Tether is claiming to have exist? And the answer was? Kind of a shruggy emoji. (laughs) um, (laughs) You know, the thing that Tether maintains and has maintained from the very beginning when when these questions started coming up, and these aren't new questions, that yes, we absolutely are backed. It used to be, they used to say, yes, we absolutely are backed by US dollars. And then a couple of years ago, found themselves embroiled in litigation, particularly in New York, where the New York Attorney General pointed out, hmm, in fact, folks at Tether, um, you have not been consistently backing all of your claims with with US dollars, and there's other sorts of things that you are saying that you have. But I mean, stable coins are important because, to your point, Felix, they are the way that people get in and out of other crypto transactions, right? So it's it provides liquidity in a way that really can't be underestimated. And Tether isn't the only stable coin. You also hear about USDC, which is US dollar coin, but the principle is exactly the same. Although the thing about USDC is that it's much more closely regulated by American regulators. And while there have always been massive questions about what exactly Tether's backed by and where those assets might be, those questions have never arisen with For USDC. USDC. Exactly. And yet, and yet, the amount of Tether out there dwarfs the amount of USDC out there. This is one of the things I don't understand. Given the choice between Tether, which is a dubious currency backed by, you know, a bunch of question marks, and USDC, which is a much less dubious currency backed by a very audited and transparent pile of assets, the crypto community has chosen the less stable, stable coin. Um, Explain why that would be the case. I would love to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, one of the things, and I have asked various people about this, and I'm some of the answers I can't yet share because I have not su- sufficiently confirmed the basis. But one of the things that has come up over and over is really like marketing and community, right? The idea that the people who have really embraced Tether are folks who are well-respected, have big names, you know, that are sort of widely followed and that there is a, a celebrity element to, okay, well, this person I trust, right? This like There's a social proof element. This person I trust has either their own position in Tether or are affiliated with the company behind Tether and the CEO, who's the CEO of two companies at the same time, in a way that USDC just doesn't have the same sort of marketing. Can I come up with a rival theory? I love a rival theory. My rival theory is that precisely because Circle, which is the company that issues USDC is so closely regulated and hand in glove with US regulators, people trading in and out of circle, are, or US persons anyway, trading in and out of circle are convinced that they're going to have to pay capital gains tax on all of the gains that circle cashes them out to. On the other hand, if you cash in and out of Tether, Tether's not going to report that to the IRS, and you don't have to pay taxes on all the money you're making in crypto. This is like the Hobbesian versus Kantian view of why people are doing something in terms of the market. (laughs) (laughs) Is it basically like shadiness is the USP of of Tether? Like the shadiness is the point, as it were? Yeah, I mean, can anyone tell me even like what country is Tether based in? Who is Tether's primary regulator? You know, basic questions like that. 
I strongly recommend the folks read the magazine piece because there are some cracking color about about both of about both of those questions. And th- there was a lot of news in the piece, right? Like Zeke was able to confirm that Tether does in fact own a a decent amount of Chinese commercial paper, not Evergrande, which they have you know consistently denied. So I just want to like be real clear, um, but. Again, it's just, you know, one of the more colorful phrases in the thing is like this, you know, this is a story that's sort of made entirely of red flags, right? But, you know, Felix, to your point, like those red flags have been flagging and red (laughs) for some time. And yet here we are. (laughs) It seemed like Tether, I mean, it's a total confidence game and the people using it are confident in Tether for some reason, even though it's extremely shady and no one seems to... Be in, be in doubt of that or question that. Everyone agrees it's kind of shady, and yet well, I don't, everyone that, I don't, seems to I don't kind of trust it and still use it, so it's fine. I don't think that know? everyone agrees it's kind of shady. I, you know, and I think that's that's kind of one of the, the the elements in the piece that I find so interesting is has Tether faced legal action? Absolutely. Have there been questions that they have kind of hedged against answering? Clearly, one hundred percent. And yet there are folks out there for whom the, you know, the consistent thing that they say is like, no, everybody's just out to get them. This is entirely unfounded. There is a real and not insignificant belief that any criticism whatsoever of Tether or any criticism of cryptocurrencies more broadly is really grounded in, you know, that that idea of FUD, that like folks are just out to get this system that is revolutionizing the financial world and none of it is is backed by facts. But isn't this them just shrouding themselves in the, the, the cultishness of crypto as a whole? That they are trying to draw take advantage of this kind of any criticism must be FUD and Tether is part of that. And they're kind of taking advantage of that, while something like like USDC and Circle, you know, is part of the same crypto community, but it seems completely straightforward and people could use that. I, I can't get away from this issue that the either the shadiness is the point, or it's just hard to pretend that this isn't a major fault line that runs through crypto. If you're going to defend this, then are you just going to defend everything? I, I just don't. So I actually put this question to um, CZ, who is the CEO of Binance. I had an interview with him last week. And I'm like, what, what's with Tether? Like, why is there? I mean, there, there was a little bit of speculation that he had, like, had some kind of relationship with, with Tether. And he denied any relationship with Tether beyond, like, it is traded on Binance, which is his exchange. But what he said was basically the it is impossible to underestimate the first mover advantage that tether just got in first and became like the place where there was the greatest amount of liquidity and if you want to trade currency pairs which is in in normal fx all currency pairs are based against the dollar right you can't actually trade the norwegian krona against the japanese yen what you do is you trade the norwegian krona against the dollar and then the dollar against the japanese yen you have to do like two legs of that trade um similarly with crypto you can't trade like solana against ether what you do is you trade solana against tether and then tether against ether and tether has just become like the us dollar of the crypto space it's become the asset the base asset against which everything else is traded. And yeah, you can trade Tether against USDC, and that's going to trade one-to-one most of the time, but that's just another currency pair. And Tether is where all the liquidity is, and so long as that's where all the liquidity is, people are going to use Tether as their sort of resting heartbeat of crypto trading in a way. And 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 changing that, because it's so path-dependent, is basically impossible. Yeah, it, it's in the... First mover advantage, incumbency, strong backers who talk a good game and tweet well. Um, there's, you know, I want to read. So after Business Week put out the article, Tether, of course, responded in a blog post and in tweets. Um, and it's very similar to kind of what you are, what you're describing, Robin, right? It says, this is a one act play the industry has seen many times before, taking snippets of old news from various places and dubious sources and making it fit a prepackaged and predetermined narrative. Um, and then, you know, they, 
they specifically mentioned. Uh, Stacey, is this true? Did you go up to Zeke Foe and with a predetermined narrative and tell him what to write? I mean, as the managing editor of crypto, that is, that is your I job, right? I would say right? Zeke Foe's been working on this story before uh, Bloomberg had even decided <laughs> to like call me. So I had very little to do with any predetermined narratives. And I think he did a really good job in that story of kind of actually challenging some of the some of the underlying assumptions that folks have. Uh, but my favorite line in this piece is exactly that first first mover advantage where they're like, you know, Tether is the most liquid stable coin in the market. It was the first stable coin and it has withstood years of volatility. Tether makes the crypto economy more efficient. It's like, bam, 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 bam. Everything that you are saying. All of which is true, yes. right? That, that's all undeniably true. All of true. those are facts, right? And this is this is kind of the fundamental tension. It's like, are the, there there are claims and then there are facts <laughs> and they are really um well within their rights and certainly their communication strategy to be pointing out you know whatever folks have been saying they've been saying this for a long time we continue to provide an absolutely essential liquidity service and we continue to say that all of our coins are fully backed even if they're not necessarily backed by US dollars <laughs> But this just feels, I mean, I, the need for something like Tether makes perfect sense. It's kind of the reserve currency of the crypto ecosystem. But it's a bit like choosing a reserve currency, not the US dollar, but the Argentinian peso. Like, it just seems incredibly cavalier by the crypto community. Yeah, well, it just seems cavalier of them to sort of accept this, that it, the first the first mover comes Robin, to are you saying that the crypto community could be a little bit cavalier? I know. I would never, I, I, never I, I, say could that. could knock me over with this feather. I know. Well, you know, I'm clearly coming out of the closet as like a massive index fund boomer, basically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's my index fund fud, I guess. So so I, I think that we, 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 um, we can come out of this discussion having concluded that crypto is possibly a domain of cavalier folks. Sure. According to Can Gary Gensler, it's the Wild West. Brock Pierce? Please quote. Can we Would you like quote to quote Brock Pierce? Co-founder of Tether, Brock. I do, I, that, my notes for this discussion were just a quote from Brock Pierce. He's the Tether co-founder, um, former child actor who appeared in The Mighty Ducks alongside Emilio Estevez. Um, anyway, um, he, <laughs> he told Zeke, quote, I'm a doula for creation. I only take on missions impossible. I mean, it was the missions impossible that, that got me. Not impossible missions. Doula for creation. Missions impossible. I, what is missions, that? Missions impossible. Mission, I mean, like, what is impossible. what is the plural Attorneys of mission general. impossible? Obviously, it is missions impossible. Correct. Yeah, missions yeah. impossible. So, I mean, there's a smart guy behind this, obviously, and um, <laughs> named Brock. Brock Pierce, and there's a great photo of him in the piece, and yeah, everyone really should read the piece. <laughs> with the hat, yeah. <laughs> and the other guy with the half-shaven, he has shaving cream only on one side of his face, and he's staring in a mirror, like, with, like, a dreamy, faraway-ish I got, I, I mean, look it's, in his like, eyes. It's just, there is, there is a lot in this story. The characters are the best part. Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. I have someone who can preach the active investing gospel and make himself what looks like something very close to a billionaire by selling little bits of paintings. His name is Scott Lynn. He has bootstrapped this company called Masterworks until this week um, and then sold off a $110 million chunk of it this week at a billion-dollar-plus valuation. So probably at this point, it's fair to say that Scott Lynn is a billionaire and i just find this fascinating the way that you can become a billionaire in the space of a couple of years just by chopping up paintings and selling them off in little so bits. felix given you actually know things about art at a level i think is un unavailable to me this is very similar to the question that you ask about you know like why people own x like why buy fractional art <laughs> 
So good question. We actually had Julia Halperin come on to Slate Money Swag to to answer that question um, a while back. And everything she said in that podcast, which was excellent and I, I can highly recommend, um, remains 100% true. Julia put the number at 500,000. Scott Lynn puts the number at about a million. But the idea is that once you're spending more than a certain amount of money on art stops being a consumption good where you're like that's something pretty that i like to look at on my wall and get you know makes my heart swell with happiness and starts becoming an actual asset that has resale value and where the resale value of that asset can in some cases be expected to go up over time and that asset has a relatively low correlation we can argue how much of a low correlation with stocks and bonds. If you listen to Scotland's marketing pitch, he will tell you very loudly that the asset has outperformed the S&P 500 over some period of time, depending on how you define the asset. I would probably quibble with that. But the fact is that certain paintings have indeed appreciated in value quite dramatically. And that is what he is selling, is the idea that, like, GameStop, Schmainstop, let me get you into Gerhard Richter and Banksy. So it's just money making money again. I you will never see the painting that you buy. It will live in storage forever. It is a purely financial transaction. One of the things that just, you know, really stuck with me from my interview with Scott Lynn was when he said, yeah, possibly they've heard of Banksy and Coors, these like street artists, but most of the stuff that we sell to the investors in Masterworks, they've never even heard of the artist. You know, we're selling Monet and Warhol and Richter, and they don't even, they haven't even heard of them. It's just like art. It's going to go up. I trust you. I, I guess I thought there's like two kinds of, or maybe three kinds of people who in, invest in art or spend lots of money on art versus like people who really like art and have a lot of money, then it's like like those people that we read Billion Dollar Whale that buy the art and put it in like storage and just use it to launder money. And then I guess super rich people who want like trophy art or something who don't actually like it, but like kind of a squishy third category. But like if you're not laundering money with it, like what what is the point of master master masterworks like the fees are very large, which I guess I didn't realize until I read Felix's piece. Like, if you're going to invest in al alternative assets, like, why would you go to Masterworks? I, I just well, I the really fee don't the understand. fees in most alternative assets are very large. It's it's hard to get into alternative assets without paying large fees. Um, I mean, think about it this way: if you buy a painting at auction, you pay the auction house like twenty percent, basically, or twenty five percent. You know, so you know, if you try and do it yourself, there are very large fees involved. If you buy anything at auction, you kind of have to pay that kind of thing. We are seeing other alternative assets like um digital basketball trading cards, you know, they might have lower fees. But in general, if you want to try and get into these uncorrelated alternative asset clusters, even if you just include things like hedge funds and private equity, the fees are always going to be big. Well, I do think, I mean, I, I, when I heard about Masterworks, I've seen them advertising, I thought it sounded absolutely insane. Like, I mean, part of the reason why you buy art is, is to either enjoy it or to brag about own, owning it, not to buy fractional shares of it and never see it. But like, I mean, with, I mean, to tie some of our discussions earlier, right? I mean, buying an index fund at, when the stock market is trading at like dot-com levels and the bond market yields, the return you get from bond markets is the lowest it's ever been for centuries, then people are just desperate, desperate for anything that might offer them a plausible return. And art, like high-quality art, has actually done really well in the long run. So that's one of the reasons why we're seeing people invest in crypto a lot is because, frankly, the chance of you making a bundle of money, becoming rich from investing stocks and bonds for the next 10, 20 years is pretty low. So you're kind of left with like Hail Mary assets. So that's like, you know, wine, art, crypto, property, you know, stuff like that. So I, I mean, kind property of like that, is like sense. one of the oldest ways of 
generating, accumulating, and maintaining wealth. I don't think they're really in the same category yeah. as say, no, 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 because property has cash flows, yeah. right? That's yeah. why it doesn't involve in that. Why it doesn't live in that swag category. But the other thing about art is that it's a bet on increasing inequality, right? The the value of expensive art is basically a function of how much money the ultra ultra. How many have, new billionaires the people buying do you it. need? So you know, once once you've bought your once you've bought your third or fourth hundred million dollar piece of property, then you start furnishing them with hundred million dollar paintings, and you know that's where you really spend the money. And so, if you think the number of multi billionaires in the world is going up over the next ten or twenty years, then it probably stands to reason that the value of high end art is going to go up with alongside that number. Certainly, for some of the masses and certain things that aren't the the, the limited uses of that, I mean, I'd rather buy uh, a millionth share of a Monet than like a non fungible token of a rock. So, and why? I certainly would prefer that <laughs> if I was a pension fund. But why not do that? And just these pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, pull their money together, buy lots of art, and rent it to galleries around the museum and generate yield that way, rather than storing no, in some rich like, person's no, that, Robin, dining room. That no. Felix no, is about no, to the, art the, explain you, so go for it. There are no, there, there is no rental market for art. I'm oh, sorry. See, well, people have tried to create it. It has never happened. Okay. Well, there's never been a fractional share market for art either. So you know, this could be our company that we start on air right now. <laughs> I think Robin's onto something. <laughs> no, there there are a couple of companies that that like rent out art to offices and rich people. Yeah, um, they, they've never really got very Real far off the ground. Renting art? That seems <laughs> exactly. Check out my basket. It's not a trophy it's if it's only rented. Yeah. Wow, this is the inequality episode uh, of <laughs> Sleep Money. <laughs> numbers round, people. What's your What's your number, Stacey? Uh, my number is eighty, which is it's the first time since two thousand fourteen that the price of oil, as measured by WTI, for those who care, topped eighty dollars. And that made me think about, wow, I remember 2014 when when oil prices were measured closer to the hundreds of dollars. Um, And it's really had me thinking about my favorite subject, supply chain crises, and the fact that we are really, really looking at intense supply constraints, obviously across different types of energy, even before we get into peak demand season in winter for much of the world. So... So, I mean, not to mention the price of natural gas in Europe that has just gone completely bazonkers and reaching crazy levels. Um, there, yeah, that's very much a supply shortage problem. Like Europe just didn't have enough natural gas to meet demand. There is apparently a supply shortage of diesel, which is coming up slowly on the United States, which no one quite knows how we're going to be able to deal with. And so, yeah, I feel like we're going to be reading these headlines Definitely through the winter. I'm going to have a completely different number. I'm going to say 1 billion, which is the number of monthly active users of TikTok. Really? Yes. It it has reached 1 billion, which is completely insane. I am one of them, I have to admit. I love TikTok. It's kind of my favorite social network. Um, there, There was a piece just out in Fortune saying that TikTok advertising drives significantly more sales than... Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like this thing is on fire right now. And obviously all of the ancient history about Trump going to war with it and trying to break it up and, you know, trying to kill it and all of that seems to have been forgotten. And so this major Chinese social network has really taken over the world in the way that like almost no other Chinese company has been able to do. Maybe we won't have to have a big attack on Facebook anymore. Everyone will just move to TikTok and that'll be that. Well, you know, I still think that one of the less well-advised moves a social network ever made was Twitter buying Vine and then nuking it. (laughs) (laughs) That is Hall of Fame idiocy. It was really incredible. R.I.P. Vine. Long live TikTok. R.I.P. Vine. (laughs) But, you know, Vine was only six seconds. TikToks go up to three minutes now. They just keep on getting longer and longer. Emily, what's your number? Okay, my number is $31.1 million. So Is that, that the was, price of a painting? 
probably, but that's not what my number <laughs> represents. It represents Indra Nui's compensation in 2017, oh! the last full year she was CEO <laughs> that of Pepsi. That story was wild. Oh my God, the most amazing softball interview you've ever read where like it's just a series of own goals by the interviewee. Yes. So in New York Times Magazine, they interviewed her for some, they interviewed her and um, she said to David Marchesi, is that how we pronounce his name? David Marchesi. Anyway, she said to the New York Times Magazine, she said she has never, ever, ever asked for a raise. And when he asked why, she said, I find it cringeworthy. I cannot imagine working for somebody and saying my pay is not enough. Now, these comments, obviously, from one of the only women to ever lead a Fortune 500 company, got she was trashed up and down Twitter. Everyone is very upset. How dare you say this? People need to ask for raises. Everyone was very, very upset by it. And to repeat, $31.1 million was her salary in 2017. So she never really needs to ask. You don't need to ask for a raise when you make that much money. My my favorite my favorite part of the interview is when she said, "I still live in the same house I, I lived in thirty years that ago." Amazing. That house is. <laughs> and then and then what did she say, Felix? Uh, all I did was buy up all of the surrounding properties. <laughs> <laughs> Very modest. It's <laughs> oh, amazing. I mean, Absolutely I should say, amazing. She told Fortune they did a follow up interview with her because she probably is feeling horrible um, because of what she said. And she explained that it was, it's cultural. Her aversion to asking for a raise is, is cultural. She said, she claimed, and she said, if women at Pepsi came and, and wanted a raise and said they were paid unfairly, she took that quite seriously. I would note that in Shruggy. that same interview, she pointed out that her direct reports would say things like, well, our compensation is indexed to your compensation. So if you don't ask for more money, we're not making more money. To be clear, the direct reports of a CEO are not broke <laughs> when they're at Pepsi. But just as a kind of a principle, yes, that is true. If if the person at the top or in, or in even middle management is declining to advocate for themselves, they're definitely not advocating for anybody else. And that is a true thing that is actually not culturally specific, right? The, the consequences of having, again, one of a tiny minority of women in positions of executive leadership set this kind of example is really damaging to the conversation about work and women at work and norms and everything else. And it was just like reading that interview was absolutely took like 24 hours off of my life <laughs> just from the stress. Not, not, not to mention the bit where she like refuses to condemn the T- Texas abortion stance, um, which is like her book. Obviously, she's plugging a book. This is why she's on the interview circuit. Um, I have seen the book. The very first blurb at the top of the back cover is Hillary Clinton. Like, this is not someone who I ever imagined would, you know, run for office as a Republican. And yet, her answer to the Texas abortion question was basically the answer you would get from someone who was running for office as a Republican. It was very odd. Yeah, it was like, well, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about what happens after the child is born or whatever. I value life. It was stuff like that. It was really I value really life and 6,000 square foot Greenwich, Connecticut mansions. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful, I think, when you're very rich, not to say crazy things like that. Just Right. I mean, I feel like I feel like I know a bunch of very rich people who are kind of capable of not putting their foot in their mouth quite. To that I think if I, if I were to hit the point where my like annual executive con- compensation was thirty one million dollars, instead of writing a book, I would just like peace out in a gigantic house surrounded by art that I own and didn't rent, <laughs> <laughs> buy up the landscaping around me, and not tell anyone anything ever again. Which <laughs> is like. Like, why? Why? Why expose yourself to the hassle of the internet when you could just not? <laughs> All right, Robin, we're going to finish with you. What's your number? Uh, well, I'm going to go for the biggest number of of, uh, of all of us. Uh, 26 trillion is how much money I, I think is in index strategies, like passive strategies at the moment. This is according to the little spreadsheet, the, the, the envelope on your desk where you're adding up. All yeah, it started as an envelope and it, it, it kind of started, it, it's flourished into a full-on Excel spreadsheet. And it, it does that include some uh, 
some assumptions, but I've sanity checked it with people in the investment industry. And it seems, yeah, so 26 trillion is probably conservative and how much money is just in passive strategies. And and the great thing about passive strategies is every time the stock market goes up another 20%, bang, that number goes up by another exactly. 20%. And there's this kind of ongoing kind of big sucking sound of money going from active to passive all the time across stock markets, bond markets. Maybe at some point in our children's lifetime, they're going to be passively investing in, in a fractionalized art index fund. Don't think that May Moses haven't tried to create that such a thing. It, it, people have tried and failed. True. Some of this stuff is hard. How much money is that? Can you put it in context in any way, like compared to something? 26 trillion, like how much, like put that put that into context because that is such a big number no one can get their brain so 26, around. It. 26 trillion is around twice America's annual gross domestic product. It is equivalent of around over a quarter of the entire global investment industry. All mutual funds, pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, index funds, hedge funds, venture capital, private equity, all that. So it's around a quarter of that. Is, is it more than the value of all of the property in Greenwich, Connecticut? Uh, it's a roughly maybe half the palace in Japan, like the, the emperor's palace in Japan <laughs> in sort of the early 90s. I think that was that was around. I think that was around fifty trillion or something. They estimated the land and the palace or something, wasn't it? I can't remember now. It's a long time ago. It was crazy. It's yeah. the tether sixty nine billion in perspective, though. Maybe yeah. that's not such a big deal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the one thing I will say about tether sixty nine billion is it is systemically important and dangerous to nothing other than the crypto industry. It's not like I'm worried yet about fallout should tether collapse to anything other than people holding Bitcoin. But that might change. We will talk more about crypto, obviously, in future episodes of Slate Money. But for now, I think that's it for us this week. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on probably the most important subject in the world. Yes, Um, correct. What is it, Emily? It's snacking, Felix. We're going to talk snacks and and just we're just going to get into it. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get into snacks with Full apologies to Shane Farrow for not having her on the show this week. But we are going to talk snacks without Shane. Many thanks to everyone for listening, for writing in. The email is slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Shana Roth for producing. Many thanks to Robin Wigglesworth in Oslo for beaming in for this episode. We will be back next week with more Slate Money. But first, on Monday, guess what? We have a tee-up episode of Slate Money Succession with Rebecca Mead, where we are going to talk about the first two seasons of Succession and what it means. And this is the woman who wrote the definitive article about Jesse Armstrong, who's the showrunner and Succession in The New Yorker. Read that article, listen to the podcast on Monday, and then we will all be ready to watch season three, episode one, on October 17th. Anyway, that's all coming up on Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.